We have been mighty blessed today, have we not? Have we not been mighty blessed this morning by the Lord's goodness and His faithfulness to us? If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And as you're doing that, uh, you may notice an insert in your bulletin this morning. Uh, Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so we at First Baptist join with Southern Baptist churches across the face of this nation to celebrate today being the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a particularly interesting Sunday to be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because today is the 50th anniversary of the passing of Roe v. Wade. And so today we are able to celebrate the passing, uh, the overturning, excuse me, of Roe v. Wade and all that it means for life. But the reality is there is still so much yet to be done in our country. There's so much left to be done uh, rather than overturning laws. There's still so much left to be done in the hearts of the people of our nation and the leaders so that we would come a point that abortion in our nation would become unthinkable in the hearts of its citizens. And so this morning, we're incredibly grateful for entities and people such as the Alabama Baptist Children's Home, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, and churches across the river region that have been praying continually for years and years and years for an end to abortion. But it seems as one one area closes, another pathway for evil opens. And so we, this morning, want to just take a time uh, on this Sunday morning, a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, just take apart this, this moment before I preach, just to, to pull in close as a faith family and just pray. Just pray together. Pray for all that needs to be done. Thank the Lord for all that he has done, but thank for the Lord for what is still yet to do. So would you pull your heart close to mine? And as I pray, would you pray right alongside me on this day today? Lord, we, we thank you for life. From the Garden of Eden, you breathed the breath of life into man. You fashioned us. As we see in Psalm 139, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. As Paul writes in Ephesians, that gives testimony to your care even before we took our first steps even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Thank you, Lord, that before a line appeared on a pregnancy test, before a heartbeat was heard by a doctor or an ultrasound was viewed in a, in a room, you knew us. Today on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we recommit ourselves to the value of all human life from inside of the womb until the last breath that we breathe. We're praying that your wisdom be upon our lawmakers, our politicians and officials to make wise and God-fearing decisions that protect life at all stages and ages. We thank you for the progress that has been made and for the work that has left yet left to be done. We thank you for those involved in crisis, crisis pregnancy centers, foster care and adoption and pray that you would raise up more. Thank you for the mentors in our church that have walked beside expectant moms. Would you continue to give the church throughout the nation compassion, kindness, gentleness, and with resoluteness to deeply care and serve and give of ourselves more and more. We pray for those who are struggling, who have had abortions in the past. Lord, would your grace be a covering for them? Teach us, Lord, to care, that we would care and walk in your way. We grieve the immorality that is all around us and believe that your radiant gospel light can overcome the darkness. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in Christ there is hope.
Or would you light up the darkness? Would you light up the darkest hearts and the darkest places with your truth and your salvation? We thank you for the mercies that were new for us as the sun was sure to rise this morning. Would you help us, Lord? We recognize the enormity of all that we ask, but we recognize precisely who it is that we are entrusting these enormous requests with. Father, we ask this all in the matchless, saving, peace-filled, grace-saturated, hope-giving, and life-abundant name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. would encourage you. As you have this little handout, there's a website for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC.com, and there's some uh, fantastic resources I would encourage you to go check out as you look and view and uh, want training or help in that area. This morning, we, we shift our focus to Mark chapter 12. You can pull out your outline here, and we'll follow along together. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Let me read them, and then we'll uh, dialogue together. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in this teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at feast. They devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering boxes. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. So as we look back two weeks ago, Stuart Hall was here last week from Disciple Now, and last the week before that, we finished our uh, section with the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests coming to Jesus and basically trying to capture him in a statement, essentially trying to kill him. And we left off with the scribe coming and talking to Jesus, and the last interaction was, and no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Right? Jesus had dropped the mic on the people and he, nobody else was going to come and ask any more questions, right? He had, he had embarrassed the people. They didn't know how to respond. And so here they are coming to him and they're just sitting around because nobody else is going to dare ask another question. And you see at the end there in verse 37, and the great crowd of people are hearing him gladly. So you've got this marketed juxtaposition of the people hearing him gladly And the scribes, chief priests, the Pharisees looking with contempt, looking for any little hole that they can crawl through to kill Jesus or to uh, get him off the track or to get people to turn against him. And that's precisely where we come to verse 35, where Jesus is not answering questions. He's just teaching the people. Verse 35, and Jesus taught in the temple. And he's teaching kind of an interesting thought here. And let's look at 35 through 37 first. And the answer to your outline, the blanks are Jesus, Savior of our souls. Let's unpack this for a minute. Jesus, Savior from our souls. 
Now, it was just a a few days ago in the scriptural timeline, but it was several weeks ago that we were looking at Jesus coming in on the donkey into Jerusalem, and people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're all excited for Jesus coming in, believing that Jesus was going to be the the Messiah for the problems that were going on in their nation, that Jesus was coming in riding on a donkey, and he was going to stop all the problems. He was going to establish a better, he was going to help them through all of their critical problems that they were facing. They believed that in the line of David, that there would be another who would come, and he would be this great earthly king that would eradicate all of their problems, and they would be lifted up out of all the the disastrous and the difficult situations, the people would be lifted up because their Messiah would come riding in to take away all their problems. We recognize here that Jesus is not just a lesser David. He's not just in the line of David, a son of David, so he would be lesser than. Somehow he is a greater David. That he has not come to overthrow an ideology or a political party. He has come to be someone who is greater than all of that. And we're, we're here some 2,000 years later, still believing at times that we're looking for that Messiah who's going to take away all of these problems. Let me just ask you a, a question. What do we need saving from? What do you and I, what do we need saving from? What is our greatest need in our salvation? What is our greatest need? We recognize if our greatest problem, if our greatest deficiency in our lives is sin, then our greatest joy is found in our Savior. If our greatest need is financial, then we tend to look to all sorts of difficult things to to give us peace and to give us joy. But can I tell you, our greatest need is a Messiah to save us from ourselves. It's our greatest need. There is nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing stronger than our greatest need of our souls, of the innermost being of who we are, is a Savior to save us from our sin. As Gabriel came to Joseph, he said his name would be called Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. There's a reason why we sang the song. There's something about that name because there is something about the name of Jesus that saves people when they turn to him from their sins. And so Jesus has come in not to be a better David, to save the people from their ideologies and the difficulties, the things they face on their earth, that Jesus has come to save the people from their sins. Can I tell you, all these 2,000 years later, we're, we're living amongst a culture that presents to us thousands of different messiahs for our soul. Hundreds and thousands of different things that are supposed to do what only Jesus can do. We we live in a culture that presents to us all these ways and means and measures that says, if this, if you'll chase after this, then you will have that thing to fill you up. And it simply doesn't work. We live amongst a culture that advertises and tells us, if you would just taste this, if you would just enjoy this, if you would just go after this, and we never call it worship this, if we would never go to the church of this, but in essence, we're living in amongst of a culture that would call up and lift these things up and say, magnify and worship these things to be the savior of your weary and hurting soul. This is the 
the cultural shift that we live in. Money is going to satisfy you in a way that money was never meant to satisfy you. Sex and drugs and alcohol and pornography are going to satisfy you in a way that they were never meant to satisfy you. Security, financial, whatever it may be, all these different things are are messiahs that the culture would say, chase after these things and your heart will be satisfied. Friends, we've got to stop chasing after the salt water that the world provides. And some of us in this room, we, we chase after Jesus for our sins, but we chase after a thousand different cultural messiahs to try to satisfy what only Jesus can. This morning, we recognize what what Jesus is trying to teach the people about what a Messiah looks like, a Messiah that would save the people from their sins, a Messiah that would not come to, to disembark the cultural norms, but he would come to be a better way. All of us, friends, in this room desperately need a Messiah. Ask, have you ever been lost before? I know I've shared this story before, but have you ever been deeply, truly lost as a kid or maybe as an adult? Have you ever been just lost that you are, you just don't know where to go, what's going on, you don't know where your parents are? As a young boy, I was lost in the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center during a concert, and I was, I was lost, lost. Not like, hey, I think my seat's over there, but just utterly and completely lost. And, and yeah, have you ever been for a point where you're, you're not lost and then all of a sudden you realize you're lost? Do you realize all that happens in that moment? All of a sudden fear grips your heart. I mean, absolute fear and anxiety. And the moment you recognize you're lost, everything changes in your soul, right? You are lost, terrified. All of a sudden everything seems big and scary. It seems like everybody around you is out to get you. In the moment of your lostness, when there's a recognition that you are lost, everything around you seems to completely fall apart. And so, as a boy, the moment that I found out I was lost, you began searching and seeking for anybody that can help you through that moment. But in reality, the only thing that can keep me safe is seeing mom or dad come around that corner. And you know, in that moment, going from lost to the moment that you're found, all of a sudden, all those big, scary fears in the moment that you're found completely fall away. All those fears and anxieties, all the people that you don't know, all the unknowns, all the raging seas of being lost that seem to be all around you. In the moment that you're found, everything seems to just, I'm going to be okay. This is what it's like to be known by Jesus. This is what it's like to have your fears assailed. This is what it's like to trust your life into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus and to have a Savior who is the Savior of our souls, not a multitude of messiahs who would help you through the different phases of life, but a Jesus who would walk with you as a good shepherd. Friends, as a church, as a people, as a culture, we've got to stop buying into the saltwater Messiah, the saltwater Savior that this culture would provide for us and drink deeply of the living water that our Lord desires for his people. And so you move right there from Jesus, savior of our souls, and he gives us a juxtaposition in 38 through 40 of the Pharisees who are teaching in the scribes. So 38 through 40, you see your second blank in your outline is Pharisees are scribes and the sharp contrast of the great commandment. Again, two weeks ago, our last text talked to us about the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And so the Pharisees then are coming in verse 38, and beware the scribes who like to walk around in these long robes and like to sit in the best places in the synagogue and places of honor who are devouring widows' houses. And then this final phrase, for a pretense, for a pretense, make long prayers. Essentially what Jesus is telling the people is to watch out for these scribes and these Pharisees. Watch out for them putting on a show. Watch out for the pretense. You remember Jesus often talked to the Pharisees and the scribes calling them hypocrites, which means actors. So the same word here, making a pretense, putting on a show, acting, being a hypocrite. In essence, the Pharisees, their religion became all about them, all about elevating and lifting themselves up rather than the God that they were called to serve. So the Pharisees' religion became about them and not him. And the same can be easily true of us if we don't have a John 3.30 heart. He must increase. We must decrease. This is a daily prayer for our heart and our soul. Lord, would you increase? Would I did decrease? Would I serve you and not me? Would I chase after you, not what I can get out of it? And so the sharp contrast of, of the great commandment to love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength leads right into 41 through 44, which is the poor widow giving her all. 41 through 44, Jesus is gonna be coming by the treasury and watching the people put the money in the offering and the rich people are putting in large sums, but he's gonna call upon this poor widow. And if you have your Bible, if you have a little pen or if you have a little note, you can, you can identify the amount of times that, that the Bible talks about who this woman is. He calls her a poor widow, came and put two small copper coins in, making it a pity. And he called his disciples together and said, this poor widow has put in all that those who are contributing in the offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. So the description of this woman is all about what she doesn't have. She's poor. She doesn't have financial resources. She doesn't have money. She's not secure. She, she doesn't have, she's, she's impoverished. The first descriptor of her is about what she doesn't have. The second descriptor is she's a widow. So she's without a husband. So right off the bat, you see that Jesus is calling attention to all the things that she does not have. She's... By all accounts, she is just a, a normal, average, poor widow. But somehow in God's economy, she is celebrated above all the others. Somehow in God's economy, he would use shepherds in a field keeping watch to be the first that hear of this newborn king. He would use a carpenter's son. He would use a virgin, Mary. He would use a tax collector, and he would use fishermen. He would use a persecutor of the church, and he would use this poor widow to demonstrate what the great commandment looks like in practical terms. See, we draw from these preceding passages and in this passage that our right attitude is critically linked to our right activity. Let me say that one more time. Our, our right attitude is critically linked to our right activity. The Pharisees had everything by all accounts. They were putting on the right show. They were doing all the right things religiously, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And this poor widow's heart was as pure as gold. All she wanted to do was say, Lord, you have done so much for me, so here I am doing all I've got for you. 
When you look at the great commandment fleshed out, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, you see all of it right here in this poor widow. And the juxtaposition of oil and water, these things are so far apart from each other. The Pharisees and the scribes and this poor widow, known for all she didn't have, but known for all that she was giving. That our right activity for the Lord is always linked to a right heartbeat for the Lord. So as you look at these passages, it's built on a beautiful, a beautiful pathway that there is no other salvation in Jesus. He is all that satisfies. What do I draw from these 10 verses that we've learned this morning? That there is no other salvation in Jesus. He is all that satisfies. And then number two, when we recognize that he is our only salvation, it humbles us through and through, unlike the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. When we recognize that he is all we've got, it humbles us through and through. And once we recognize that, it leads us towards the great commission and the great commandment, which is a natural overflow of a life emptied for the Lord. This poor widow, this poor widow is simply giving out of the overflow of her love for the Lord. It wasn't routine, it wasn't for show, it wasn't activity. It was the overflow of what was happening in her heart to say, this is, Lord, I'm giving you all I've got. And when we struggle with this, it goes back to looking, do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I recognize just precisely what Jesus has done for me? Everything always starts at that foundation. As I talked about a couple weeks ago, if our foundation is off, then the activity is off. And so we always go back to this beautiful picture of what this poor widow is linked to our Jesus who emptied himself, who made himself poor for our sake, who gave of himself completely by dying on the cross. He gave us everything so that we might become rich. So as you see on the bottom of your outline, it all comes back to the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. As you fill in those blanks, those four words were chosen very carefully. That as you write down the word all, that you would prayerfully consider in your own heart, is that true of your soul? Are you loving the Lord with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and all of your soul? Are you seeing the activity of the fruit of the Spirit welling up in you as you you pour out your soul, knowing what Jesus has done for us? Let's pray together. Lord, we, we, we just stop and say thank you. Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, I thank you for this poor widow that testifies to a heart that is devoted and trusting in you. Lord, I confess my own heart at times when I can look more pharisaical than like this poor widow. Lord, teach me, show me, refine me, shape me, transform me more into your image, Lord, every day. Lord, I don't want to just preach this word. Lord, I want to live it out in my heart and in my soul beyond the walls of this sanctuary. Lord, I, I, along with our faith family, we need your help. 
We need your guidance. We need your leadership. We need your strength. So help us, Lord. As we sing this invitation song, this invitation is an invitation, Lord, for you to come and just invade our souls to teach us and that we would adjust where we are off the pathway. So again, Lord, we just ask you to have your way in us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.